Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a Swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I mean, if it gets renewed, it still hasn't been renewed at the time of recording this. Jokes on you, past Mike. It's Mike from after you recorded this. And now season two of Percy Jackson has been announced. You love to see it. Good. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The Newest Olympian. My name is Mike Schuber. I'm the titular Newest Olympian. I'm a grown man who never read the Percy Jackson books as a kid. I read them as an adult to determine if it was a book series that society has been sleeping on. I said yes. Then I covered some other stuff. And most recently, I covered the TV show. And hopefully society is waking up to it. I'm on a quest to see if society has been sleeping on the entire series and the whole universe now. And I'm on this quest joined by two folks this time. We are trying to cover all of our bases of different types of people that have watched the show just to do a big, wonderful discussion. So let's meet our guests. First, we have someone who you may have heard on big screen sports or on an episode of Meddling Adults in the past. It is Kyle Banduho. Kyle, how's it going? It's going good. Uh, You also have heard me if you attended the San Antonio Live show which uh hasn't hit the feed yet oh my goodness that right we are in the weird world where this is technically your first appearance on the newest olympian but it is your second time that we've done something together time is funny we'll be covering the sea of monsters movie afterwards but Uh, an excellent film oh you know and that's why you host a movie podcast because you have great taste in movies but our second guest that we have today is someone that is new to the show but you might know them from their wonderful video essays on youtube or the queer movie podcast it's rowan ellis rowan how's it going hello it's going great thanks for having me on thank you for coming on now the big reason of doing this wonderful panel of folks that we have here is to try to cover all of the bases of Percy Jackson fandom in terms of giving a full review of the whole season one of Percy Jackson and the Olympians. So for folks listening, obviously I have read all of the main five books and then I watched the movies and then I watched the TV show. So I did it in like the true order, the way our Lord of the Sea Poseidon intended. For the two of you though, what is your history with Percy Jackson? What was the order in which you consumed stuff so that people can know your context that you're bringing to the table today? I consumed zero Percy Jackson. I, when it comes to young adult uh, series, I made my bed with a different series as a youth. I did not consume any Percy Jackson content until uh, Mike told me about the San Antonio live show, which was going to cover the Sea of Monsters movie, uh, the second Percy Jackson movie. And that was the first thing I watched. And it was a lot. I had questions. The live show itself was a lot of fun. And then when this show got close to debuting, Mike especially was like, hey, this is something that you might like your son. I have a 10 year old, which I'm I'm sure we'll talk about. The show was something we experienced together, but I had no I knew nothing about Percy Jackson except the second movie, which unfortunately reveals a twist in the show. But other than that, all it's all I really knew. And I just knew it was generally well regarded by anyone who had read the series. Cool. What about you, Rowan? 
Um, so I also hadn't read the books, but this is like a deep and dark confession for me to give you here because I worked for Penguin in the UK for years, specifically in their YA department who publish all of the Percy Jackson books. And so I've pretended like I've read Percy Jackson quite a bit. If I'm making, you know, if I was posting about a new release, it'll be like, we're all so excited. And I'm like, I'm excited for all of you who have in fact read these books. <laughs> but I did kind of osmosis get some information in my head. So I feel like I sort of knew a bunch of stuff that I subsequently realized were big spoilers that I just thought was information from the books. But I was going to watch the show anyway, because I'm a huge fan of the creative team and the writing team specifically behind the show, the Black Sales producers who are writers on the show. So I was kind of already planning to watch it, but then Penguin got in touch and were like, do you want to run like a watch along on Discord? So I hopped back in so technically, I'm a professional Percy Jackson watcher. Let's um, go. That is a title that I technically <laughs> dictionary definition hold. That's great. That's fantastic. The expertise has been checked. I like your knowledge of Percy Jackson feels like my knowledge of a lot of things where I did improv comedy for years and a bunch of that would be short form improv. So I like know a whole bunch of cursory information. Like I've seen zero episodes of Game of Thrones, but I can like make six jokes about it in an improv show and get by. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's very much that energy. <laughs> and then I also decided after having watched the show, my friends and me were just hanging out and we were like, should we just watch the first Percy Jackson movie? Because it's meant to be bad. And sometimes watching bad films is a great way to spend your time. Uh, so I have also watched the first Percy Jackson film as well. But um, yeah, I was just, I think, a little bit too old for Percy Jackson, the original book series when it was first coming out. And then because I hadn't gotten invested in that, in Percy Jackson and the Olympians, I think any of the subsequent series didn't necessarily appeal to me. Although they do get a lot queerer as they go on. So I feel like that might be the thing that draws me in is knowing which ones are the, the gayest of all of the <laughs> spin-off series might might be the one to tempt me. Yeah, I mean, I will soon be getting into the sequel series, but I'll just have to see where it all heads. I know there's certainly at least fan theories about some queer relationships in the first series, <laughs> Selena Clarice, but we will just have to see <laughs> how those develop because I have no idea. Is the first movie this show like the, there's the show cover what the first movie is the first movie the first book in theory yes the movie was supposed to cover <laughs> the same thing that the show did they allegedly had the same source material okay. but the movie is vastly different as Rowan knows and Kyle as Indeed. we probably at least alluded to on stage there are yes. just some choices and and still like I think this TV show definitely made some deviations from the book but I think the key difference was that there was a reason behind them mm -hmm. whereas in in the movie, Ooh. instead of going to the St. Louis Arch, for example, they go to the pretend Parthenon in Nashville because Christopher Columbus decided, no, the arch isn't Greek enough. Let's send them to the Greek place. So they went there and they fight a different monster for no reason. Okay. So, okay, cool. There. Cool. Let's ride. Let's ride. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess for both of you, since this was something that would be new to you when you were watching it, when you watched episode one, do you feel like it set the stage well? Did you feel like the pacing of it was good at the conclusion of the first episode? How did you feel it in terms of it like laying the groundwork for your understanding of the Percy Jackson universe? I can imagine the groundwork as a reader would have worked in terms of pacing because essentially you kind of want to get to the bit where the premise is being dealt with, right? If the premise is that this kid is a half-blood, is, you know, half-god, is a demigod, you kind of want to get to the bit where he's a demigod reasonably fast, mm -hmm. especially if you're someone who knows the book, like knows what's happening and you know the premise. And it's like, okay, I don't need like two episodes of 
waiting around to essentially get to the bit that's in the one line summary of the show. And in theory, that works for someone who hasn't read the books either, if it is in the one line summary for the show on Disney+. Plus. But I did think it was very fast. I think they try to really do a lot, hammering in a bunch of information. But I do think, and this is kind of a theme for me in general with the show, that the tight runtime of those episodes and the fact that it is a very episodic story means that you are having to sort of punch in a lot of exposition information and be doing a quest narrative at the same time, which I think is a little tricky. So for me, the pacing was kind of fast and that was something that sort of ran through the whole show for me. But I did enjoy getting that look at sort of Percy's world before we entered into the camp and we had a little bit of showing his sort of normal life as it was, even as it was sort of interrupted by mythical experiences. Yeah. How'd you feel, Kyle? So I, especially because my first Percy Jackson experience was the second movie, and I I think I told you this, I had a lot of questions and I felt like it didn't really set a lot of the things up that I needed it to. And again, I was jumping into the second part of the series. I enjoyed the first episode. I thought the exposition and some of the... Um, and it, having the background of the second movie helped because when Percy was going through the things at school and was seeing things that people weren't quite seeing and stuff, I was like, I kind of know what that is. I kind of know what he's going through. So that that helped. But I, I like seeing the origin story part of it. I think definitely if I had read the books, I would have had more context around everything. But you know, if you read the source material, you're going to know a little bit more. But I, I really enjoyed it. I was mega pissed at Grover the first episode when he like narked at him at the school. And then I was like, oh, there's a reason for this. Okay, I, that, that caught me very much by surprise because I was like, I thought this was our guy and he's and he's just getting him kicked out of school. <laughs> I enjoyed it. And I will say like, I'll, I'm probably going to do all of this in line with my 10 year old. But he he also he was hooked after the first episode. So it, it was perfect for him. Cool. Awesome. And I know that the TV show, I think it was very smart. I don't know if this was a particular Percy Jackson thing or if it's just a Disney thing. I'm so out on like watching TV or consuming anything when it comes out, as you can see by my career, that I don't know if like two episode drops are normal. But I feel like the two episode drop for Percy Jackson and the structure made a lot of sense because I agree, Rowan, like you want to get to the point where they're doing the thing. And if you you know, even the most cursory of information about Percy Jackson, you would know like, oh, yeah, it's Greek gods and they're at camp instead of school. So for the first two episodes to be like, here's this. And then by the end of the second one, they're at the camp. I think that makes sense. Did you watch episodes one or two back to back? And do you feel like that helped? Because I think it was a huge improvement on how the schedule could have been to try to make that pacing feel a little bit better to have the first two episodes available right away. We did one and two back to back. Okay. Yeah, definitely. I was watching it while also commenting, text commenting live. We did like a, a live watch of those first two episodes on the Penguin Discord. And I completely agree. I think it really worked having a a little bit of extra time to do that setup and to also leave you with a bit of a cliffhanger going into the next episode, even though you did have to wait for it. I'm always really interested about how those writing decisions are made and how early they're made. Is that something which is decided already where they say, hey, you're going to get this many episodes, we're going to drop them weekly and you're going to have two in the beginning that you can kind of use as a setup? Or if it's decided after they've scripted it and they look at those scripts and figure out which one do we think marketing-wise is going to work best as a drop option? Because you're right, there is kind of a bit of a 
a mix of different ways of doing these shows. Although I will say that having like multi-episode drops at the beginning does seem to become more of the norm in order to get people a little bit more hooked. I think there's a, yeah, seems to be a little bit of leeway of understanding like, hey, we're not expecting you to do literally everything in the first 20 minutes of a a show, which I guess is nice. Um, Kind of, I guess that's something. Yeah, I think it's smart. I think for a series like this, it makes a lot of sense. And I think it worked. So I'm glad to hear that for the two of you that worked as well. Yeah, I think you had, I would, will say, I think you had to get him to camp. The first episode ends on kind of that cliffhanger. I think you, once he gets into camp, I think that's when things really start picking up. I think you had to get to that point. Yeah, I think in a dream world, the series would have been more than eight episodes because we could have done like, I think an episode and a half at camp would have been very cool just so that camp wasn't so rushed because camp is cool, but we don't get to see a whole bunch of camp. But when you have eight episodes, like, yeah, by the end of episode two, they need to be leaving camp. You can't have two full camp episodes. So I feel like a lot of quote unquote problems with the show could have been solved by there being two more episodes at least. But I don't know that that was ever on the table. Who knows what the specifics are? But I think with what they had, I think it was still pretty good. Now, as far as going beyond those first two episodes with the two of you watching with the weeks in between, I know that there are some people who were watching and they didn't necessarily love having to wait. I don't know if that's just like a kids these days thing or if like you felt like the way the show broke down and stuff was bad. How did you feel waiting? Because I, as a distinguished member of the press, uh, had screener access. So I got to watch episodes one through four and then episodes five through eight. So I didn't have to deal with it. So I was just like, everything's great. Everything's cool. But I don't know if it was because it was because I got to watch them back to back to back. It helped me because... While the show was going on, we also welcomed a newborn into the household. And so I wasn't like available to binge. And it was something that like, especially when you bring a second child into a home with the first child, you want to find some priority activities for that first child to make sure that they remember that they are also a member of this family. It was nice for me to like once a week or, you know, like I think we did seven and eight at the same time just because of of time. I'm glad that they're teaching today's children about delayed gratification and and waiting, (laughs) waiting a week for these things to come out because back in my day we didn't we didn't have everything streaming i don't know i thought it was effective to not fly through it like i like that each episode kind of left you with something like a little cliffhanger or something to get you there but i don't think there was a single episode where it finished and i was like i'm gonna die if i don't get the next one so i I don't think it was something like that how'd you feel rowan yeah i kind of agree i don't necessarily feel like i was like oh i can't like gotta wait till next week to find out about this thing like it kind of felt like they were sort of rounded off in each episode instead which i guess can be a good thing or a bad thing depending on how you're how you deal with yeah delayed gratification yeah i liked it i also just from a work perspective i enjoyed having them spread out a week so that i could at least have some time to make the episodes and stuff but i also think and of course the podcaster says this i think talking about the show is the most fun part uh I feel like when you have weeks in between, it's more fun, especially with a show based on an IP with such a wonderful active fandom that has been clamoring for something like this to come out for years. I think talking about stuff, speculating what is to come, raving about what has already happened, wondering what the changes are. I think all that stuff from week to week is really fun. And I think it just makes for a more enjoyable experience because it's spread out over the course of two months or so, as opposed to, you know, when Stranger Things drops and then you talk about it for four days. And then after that, it's old news. And then you also had to watch like 12 hours of content without sleeping. So I think it worked out really well. And I 
really enjoyed it. So I'm glad to hear that that pacing worked out well. I know I had the benefit of getting to watch stuff back to back, so I didn't have to sit with some of the changes, but I still think a weekly structure is very nice. Both of you had talked about a little bit of the exposition elements of the first two episodes, or at least the first episode. And I do think that there was a lot of exposition in the show, but to me, it never felt like an exposition dump. I feel like they did a good job of weaving it into conversations to where it felt like a conversation that these people would actually have, as opposed to the thing where sometimes people enter scenes and they're like, oh, Percy, what's that new pen you have or something like that. Did you feel like the exposition was overpowering, not fun, too much talking? I know that was a complaint of the show, but I'm interested to hear what you two think about it. I thought that was one of the strongest parts of the show, that they it wasn't super exposition heavy. Like, I was watching it with a lot of questions. I was curious, like, okay, why are they going here? Why are they going there? What's going on? I just generally ask a lot of questions. And like, there was a lot of talking and things like, you know, some parts where you could see that they were clearly setting up, okay, they have to find a way to explain this. But Mike, I think like you said, I thought they did a really good job of weaving it into normal conversation to get us acclimated with what this world is and and how things work, which is, I know my comparison is the movie. The movie didn't do a good job of that at all. So seeing this, like everything was pretty much an improvement. I think for me, it's a tricky one. I think that I kind of just, a lot of the question marks I had around the show were things that I'm like, this could have been solved by having these episodes be 45 minutes long. It felt to me a lot like a lot of the scripting that was happening was the stuff that's like, okay, these are the pieces of dialogue and action that we need to tell this story. I needed that for me, that extra 10, 50 minutes of like stuff to flesh everything out in a little more of like a world building way and like a character development way that felt like you weren't having to combine character development with exposition at the same time. Because it felt like Annabeth, for example, just for me, sometimes just became the person who told everyone what was going on. <laughs> like Percy was the one who was like, what's going on? And Annabeth is like, I'll tell you what's going on. She definitely does that in the book sometimes though. <laughs> so like it kind of tracks. No, I can see. And I feel like it's, it is very much like also a thing that happens in a lot of middle grade and into YA where it's like, okay, you have the characters in the world who knows about everything. You have the character who's like, deep in the lore and understands the strange stuff. You have the character who's new that's like the audience stand in in a way. So I didn't understand that, but I wish that we got more stuff where there were things, especially with their friendship, that it went a little bit into other stuff because it felt sometimes like it was like they're having conversations and they're talking, but the talking is just giving us information and then we're fighting. And then that cycles around. And I think when you've got a plot like this, that's very quest narrative where the quests are always basically go somewhere and fight something. And that's going to be wrapped up by the end of this episode. For me, I was like, I was really hoping for something a little bit that would give us some extra meat on the bones of what we had. But I also am so aware of the fact with the runtime of that short amount of time per episode, where you were introducing not just, hey, this is where they are in setting, but an entirely new creature or monster, especially for the younger audiences who aren't familiar with Greek mythology, like, and you're trying to get their friendship developing and you're like, it's a lot to do in like 20-ish minutes. So I think they did a good job in terms of squidging down all of those things, trying to make everything do more than one thing at once. But I was kind of like, oh, it just really felt like it would have benefited to me for like a little bit of a longer runtime. 
Yeah. And I wonder what factored into that. I feel like it could be just the nature of the show uses kid actors. It is hard to film stuff with kid actors because there's very strict requirements on when they got to take breaks and stuff like that. So maybe it was harder. I think also children attention times Mm -hmm. like that length of show is perfect for a 10 year old. Mike, I I wanted to ask you, though, as a book reader, when you were watching each episode, were you like conscious of like, oh, there's a lot of context that I have? Like, I know what's going on because I have all this book related context context or were we getting a lot of what was on page first to agree with what you said i think this show gets a little bit into like when adults complain about star wars movies like these Mm -hmm. are children's movies or when people complain about doctor who like this is a children's tv show i think that's also true for this people like why aren't the episodes longer because this show is for kids like (laughs) you're an adult now and you can appreciate it too but it's a kid's show also though to get back to what you're saying i think that the show did a good enough job with the context to where And this is where the two of you come in. Like, I don't know that you ever have to pause the show and Google what's happening. Or if you're watching it on the couch with someone who's read the books, you have to turn and be like, what's going on there? I feel like the only thing that happened for was for some things that don't matter as much. Like, I don't know that they ever talk about why Percy has the blue candy or the blue pancakes. And that's a thing in the books. That's a whole nother like inside joke thing. So I guess in the TV show, you could watch episode eight and be like, why did they do such a dramatic zoom in on the blue pancakes? Or why does Percy care about this little bag of candy? so much. I feel like the only context things you lose out on are little Easter eggs. But as far as like big picture stuff, I really don't think there was anything where I had to explain to someone who hadn't read the books like, oh, they do this because of that. And maybe you could say that's to a fault, at least for some of the people complaining that there's too much exposition dump. But also at the same time, they're trying to bring in new people to the show. They're trying to get a new audience on board. They don't want anyone to be confused. I personally feel like they did a good job of it. Did you feel confused at any point with anything, Rowan, your first time watching this kind of stuff? No, it wasn't. It wasn't being confused at all. But I will say like with the blue food, for example, for me, that's an example of something where I'm like, that is a very, very specific and human detail. Like knowing context from other people talking about it, of why it's important with the relationship with him and his mom, like that feels like something that could have been added to the show that would have been an interesting non-expositional scene. I do understand the idea of like having kids attention spans these days, but like talking about Doctor Who, Doctor (laughs) Who episodes are about an hour long. Like it's Mm. not unheard of to have that. But I did think that like either we were saying more episodes or like longer episodes. There are examples of kids media in which they're able to at least half an hour, you know what I mean? As opposed to 20 minutes. I definitely feel like there was nothing in it that I was going... Well, I don't know what's happening here, but I'm also aware of the fact that I'm an adult who yeah. knows about <laughs> Greek mythology. So I'm like, I feel like, so things like, for example, the episode with Medusa, I'm like fascinated to know. I know that Daphne had a hand in that episode and talking about it and has done an interview where she's talked about the idea of like, if you're an adult, you know what this character is referring to. But if you're a child, you only really know if you are old enough to understand the context of that. And in which case it's okay for you to know about it. And that to me is really interesting. I'm kind of fascinated to know if there are things that, depending on your age, you picked up on those like nuances of those relationships or, or things like that as well. Yeah, Kyle, I mean, for your son, was he A, confused at any point? And then B, for any of those sorts of things like Rowan is talking about, where if you're an adult, you know what's up, or a kid, you might not know. What was his perspective? So I don't think he was confused. I mean, the coolest thing about this show was I bought him, I think on your recommendation, or maybe another like mutual friend of ours, Danny Weiser, I bought him the Percy Jackson book for, I think, Christmas 2022. And that thing was collecting dust. And then we watched the first two episodes of this show. 
And he blew through it before the finale. Like we so went to cool. Barnes and Noble this past weekend to get Sea of Monsters to get the second one. So he had all the context. I mean, for me, I wasn't ever confused, but I did feel like this is again, going back to like the book would probably give me some more context. I felt like it was a very high level view of everything they were doing. And it didn't get into the nitty gritty. And like Rowan said, like a lot of deep character development and wondering about a lot of Percy's or, or Grover's or anyone's really like internal motivations or things like that. But it was it was kind of light. It was just like, okay, we're going to fight this monster. We're going to fight this monster. We, we got to get here. Now we're on the train. And now the you know, the things like that, like it was very I thought it kept it simple enough where I wasn't confused. And then my son wasn't confused. He was obviously he was reading the book too, but I there was never really a moment where he was like, oh, what is this? What's going on? I thought it was also cool that after reading the book, he was still never like, oh, they didn't change this or they didn't change this or whatever. There was only the um, dream at the end of the last episode kind of threw him because he was like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. But other than that, it was um, it was easy to follow like to a point where there were certain times where I wish we'd maybe had more context. I would have liked to have known a little bit more about how they got across the country and like why they chose some of the routes they did and some of that, like the little minutia that's missed when you, you know, when you're doing a a high level overview. But I I thought it flowed pretty smoothly from that perspective of like, it wasn't dragging you too much into the weeds where you get confused. Yeah. I think the traveling across the U S I think is the key example of what Ron is getting at earlier with, if the episodes were a little bit longer, you could have had that stuff in. But if you're trying to, as Ron said, squidge it down to the the things you need the most, they kind of took over the things of like, okay, do we really need them discussing how they have an Amtrak layover in one of the things, which does happen in the books? Or, oh, do they really have to talk to the magical talking poodle about getting on a train from New Jersey across to the West, which is also a thing that happens in the books. And I... Hope, and I don't know if this is a thing, Rowan, you would have more experience with this covering more series and stuff. I would hope that for season two, maybe they can expand it out a little bit more, whether that is, I mean, if it gets renewed, it still has been renewed at the time of recording this. But maybe because of the success of it or maybe with some of the actors being older, like some of the other actors are going to be over 18, like maybe they will be able to do either more episodes or longer episodes because some of the episodes were like approaching 40 minutes, like the finale was like 40 minutes. But then there were some like episode four and episode six were both like, I think, 29 minutes total with intro, outro last week on and all of that. So those you're looking like a mid 20s episode. Even if they don't get more episodes, if we could have season two be like eight 45 minuters, then I think that could help a lot to bring in some of this stuff that does give you the context and then also would give you, and this is a question I had for the two of you, one of the critiques that I probably find the most valid is that I think the books are a lot funnier than the show. I think there were still comedic elements in the show, but honestly, it's kind of a problem because some of the funniest parts of the book is Percy as a first person narrator is so funny and he's so sassy. And anytime someone says something as the narrator, he can be like, well, that was a bunch of hogwash or whatever. Do you feel like the show had enough comedy? I think it could have had more, but I also see why they were focusing more on like the story stuff as opposed to the the sillier elements. We'll start with you, Rowan. Mm, yeah, I don't think that you would have necessarily thought that this was meant to be a comedic series if you were coming at it without kind of any context. And I do think that there were possibilities that it were kind of put to the side to do a more traditional sort of series, like having the narration from Percy at the beginning. There was the option there, I guess, if they wanted to, to look at like what a 
bookending it with a bit of narration from him. Some people were suggesting like really digging into a stylistic option and having an almost Fleabag Deadpool style like to camera element, which I think would have been a very extreme choice. Probably not a Disney Plus would have been like. Um, But I think that like we obviously bookended the series with a sort of narration from Percy. And I do think that having more of that would have made sense because I don't necessarily feel for me, like I was like, haha, what a funny series. But I also think there are elements of the books that when you hear about them, you're like, you have a choice whether to take this seriously or to not. And I think that happens a lot with YA and especially middle grade stuff where there'll be a detail, which is very like whimsical or fairy tale about like, so-and-so was trapped in a dungeon. And you're like, hmm, that's like fun in a fairy tale way, but the reality of being trapped in a dungeon uh, is not good. And so there's a lot of subtext, for example, people talk about with Percy's stepdad, where if you take that seriously and you take it to its logical, like YA old audience conclusion, that's an abusive household. If you do it, the funny version of like, Percy's mom got with a guy who was stinky so no one could detect him. That's the funny like fairy tale version. And when you have a live action, I feel like you're having to figure out what side of that line you're going, where the reality of like a woman spending her life with a man she doesn't love in order to protect her son is fundamentally horrific. But it's like, how far do we get? How are we going to balance this in a kid's show? And so I did feel like it didn't necessarily lean into the comedic elements of those bits. I felt like it kind of went more on the more serious side of it for better or worse. Cause I kind of agree there was not, I knew about Percy being like satty and funny from people talking about him as a character, but I didn't necessarily get a ton of that from the show. Yeah. I think it was there a little bit. I think there were still funny moments. You've got, you know, Percy passing time at the capture the flag thing. You've got his first conversation with Annabeth after the bathroom thing is funny. Like the thing where they're leaving the parking garage is hilarious. Grover has a bunch of good jokes. Like I think there is funny stuff throughout. I think they could have just like had more of them. I do think they handled the smelly Gabe thing well because it's another one of those things. If you read the book literally, like they do have him be more abusive to Sally and then Sally does like intentionally murder him <laughs> with the, the Medusa head energy. instead of him accidentally coming up on it. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's how I felt too. But it's also like, yeah, it's a kid's show. I don't know if we can have the protagonist's mother just straight up murder <laughs> a guy. Murder a man. <laughs> yeah, so I see why they made some of those changes. How about you, Kyle? Like, did you find it funny? Did your son find it funny? He found it funny. There are things that like kids will find generally more funny. Like everything Grover said he thought was hilarious. But I I had the same context because you and Steven were telling me that in the book, Percy's a lot more like wisecracky and things like that. And then I think I went in expecting a little more of that. And it does lean more on this as a more serious quest. And it, it leans, I'm sure the book probably balances this better, but it does lean to more on Percy of struggling through this, trying to figure out who he is, trying to figure out what his relationship with his father, his real father is going to be like and things like that. Like Percy's a lot more, just take things a lot more serious. I think the show could really benefit from that. And and I think Rowan, you had mentioned a little more like development of the friendship and things like that. I think the friendship could 
probably be benefit from that. Like the little things that come with having inside jokes or razzing each other, laughing about things. Like I think as they grow, that would be a benefit because that's one of the best things about young adult stories and, and finding a fictional group of friends is that you, you want to feel like they're your friends or you want to, you want to come along with them for their journeys. And that's not just slaying monsters and finishing quests. That's just like the little things and the, the joking around as a group and actually feeling like kids. I thought they did a really good job feeling like these are young teenage kids, but I, I think it could, to the benefit of the show, get a little lighter in some parts and give Percy a little, maybe be a little less stressed. And I, I don't know <laughs> if that jives with the books, but just maybe like have bring a little more humor into it. I think it could benefit season two. Thinking about it now, I feel like a lot of the humor in the first book is more from narrator Percy versus Percy the character. I would want to reread the book and just kind of like take a note of every joke and see if Percy the character said it or if it was something like Annabeth said something to Percy and then as the narrator he would say something like as if that meant anything to me. I feel like a lot of the comedic moments come from narrator Percy. So when you do a show where you are not having a bunch of narration, you're going to lose a lot of those moments and you don't necessarily want to force them in. So I can see why some of the humor didn't necessarily translate. But I do know that Uncle Rick has said something like Rick Erden posted, I don't know if it was an interview or something on one of the social media updates he's been doing, but he says somewhere that if he has any regret of this season, it's that it wasn't as funny as he would have liked it to be. So I think that will be an intentional choice. And I feel like for Sea of Monsters, given the way that story goes, there will be more opportunities for building out that friendship. So I think it's going to be okay. And I think something I'm trying to keep in mind for a lot of this is I hope that the show does get extended for future seasons because this could be something where we look back at season one and we're like, that was fine. Mm -hmm. Like it set the groundwork and there's so many shows that go on to have incredible runs where the first season is horrendous. Like the first season of Parks and Rec is garbage. And then the rest of that show is fantastic. So if the low rung on the ladder is this season, I think that's a great floor because I still think it was very good. I think there's some room for improvement, but I think it should set up everything really well, especially if they get to make more episodes, make longer episodes, have more budgeting in it, stuff like that. It's funny you say that because Parks and Rec has been my wife's postpartum watch. She's like the last person to watch it. And it's going through that same thing of me just having to say, like, you just got to get through season one because they didn't, you really really, do. didn't really know what they were doing there. Mike, I'll ask you, like, does the book series get better? Like, is it viewed as something that is on kind of the upward ascent? And this is just kind of your placeholder, like your table setter? I think if you asked everyone their favorite book, because I've done some polls for the New Olympian as well, what you will get is like five very slightly beating four, very slightly beating three, very slightly beating one, very slightly beating two. Like everybody enjoys all the books. Generally, people think they get better as they go. Except for I think more people would say they like the first book more than the second. But as far as like the story and stuff, the first one is very much like a table setting book. And then the second one is kind of like more of like a side quest thing. And then three, four, five were like, all right, knuckles cracked. Here's the story. Chronos time. And they took some of that Chronos stuff from book five primarily and put it into the first book, which I think is really smart to set those stakes so that the villains that will become the main villains feel more earned and like they've been with us the whole time because When I read the first five books, the first one kind of felt like a you could tell it was a book that was made up of short stories that Rick Riordan told his son as bedtime stories because it's like, here's the one where they go to the arch. Here's the one where they go to the evil waterbed store. Here's the one where they fight Medusa. I still think it's fantastic, but it feels a little more like compilation-y as opposed to a full album. So 
I feel like the story, like getting into the overarching stuff gets more interesting with each subsequent book. And I think the show will do a good job of it with each subsequent season, especially because they've already started to bring in those later things. So that's another reason why I'm really excited and hopeful that the show will continue because I think there's a lot of really fun stuff to tell. And Rick clearly like figured out more of what he was cooking as he continued to write the books. Is there room for these actors to age? Like does Percy age progressively or are we going to have some problems there? So here's what's going to be interesting. I think and I hope if it does get renewed that they would do it for seasons two and three at least because in a dream world, they would back to the future two and three seasons two and three where they film it at the same time because the way the time jump works is two takes place one year after one, but then three is starting with like Christmas break instead of summer. So three is only like six months after two and then four, I think, is the summer after that. So I think it's another only six month jump. And then five is a year after that. So especially because there's been a little bit longer of a break between seasons one and two than they would have hoped for, I feel like with strikes and everything, I wonder if they're going to do two and three together. But also, like, there's not as much room to age. But at the end of the day, it's so much better than the movies where Alexandra Daddario was 22 years old in the first one. And she was supposed to be 16 question mark. I think I said in the live show, she was starring in the first season of True Detective right around that same time, playing a <laughs> drastically different character. Yeah. Which, like, yeah, I rewatched that recently, and I was just like, man, I just saw you in Percy Jackson. This is weird. Mm -hmm. But it's funny that with the, the Percy Jackson universe, I thought camp was a full-time thing. I thought they had – I was kind of under the impression that they had to stay there the whole time because that was the only way they were going to be safe. But then at the end, he's going back to school. It's kind of like the reverse Harry Potter where everything happens when you're out of school, and Harry Potter's like, nothing happens in the summer. Yeah. This was the big thing I was confused about, that their whole shtick is like, as soon as you step out of camp, you're all dead. And then they were like, well, summer's over, baby. Baby, we got to go back to school. I'll see you next year. And I'm like, wait, what? Did I miss something fundamental to the law during this show? <laughs> so I think this is probably the biggest example of a thing that book context helped that I'm only realizing now is that in the books, I believe, and to be fair, I've only read each book once <laughs> as nature of my show. I'm pretty sure the situation is you stay at camp full term. There's like one little throwaway line that Mr. D Jason Manzuka says at the end of episode eight, where he says, like, if you're not staying for the full term, get out. Basically, like the higher risk people or people that don't have any sort of family situation to go home to stay at the camp year round. So like Annabeth has stayed at the camp year round and she got there earlier than most people do. I don't think they made that super clear in the TV show. And then Luke as well. I don't know if he got there earlier than most people, but he's another year rounder. I don't think they made that distinction very well. And that's another thing that like you would know, but they didn't say it in the shows like the bead necklaces you get one bead for each year you could maybe context clue it where at the end of the year percy has one bead and in the beginning of the year he wasn't wearing any beads and then some campers some of the older ones have like five beads and some of the younger looking ones only have like one or two but again they never like go through camp logistics in the show i think that's where i'm saying if they had done an episode and a half at camp we could have got that stuff and that would have been cool but what are you going to do you got to get to the quest before episode three i get it but it is a little confusing. It is one of those things that you kind of just like, yeah, when you're reading the book because you're like, it's a middle grade fantasy series, sure. But yeah, the general context is that the higher risk people stay at camp year round. People that have, I guess, good home lives like Percy go home. <laughs> but also something that they definitely didn't establish is that Grover as Percy's protector is one of many people. They have people at schools all throughout 
New York and beyond that are at schools where they think demigods need protection. And then if they come across a student that presents themselves as someone who is a demigod, then they protect them. So like in the book, you get way more of like Grover and Chiron kind of scheming together to prepare Percy. And I don't think they set that up as much in the show. You get a little bit of a like Grover kind of getting Percy kicked out of school, but there's multiple scenes of Grover and Chiron at school before camp talking about Percy and Percy like overhears it. I think that's really fun. And those sorts of things were the things I was most sad to not see in the show because they're really cool. But it's also one of the things like the pacing of a book is so different than the pacing of a series. So I get it. Yeah. When they go on the quest, it does feel like, hey, man, we just got here. Like, mm-hmm. we just got to camp. I feel like there's more little things to little intricacies to learn. But like you said, you got it. The quest, I think, takes what, five episodes? So um, I, I can see why that was the priority. Yeah. 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 I was, I will say, like, screaming as a fan of Black Sails about some of the stuff in this show in a good way. So, First of all, to agree with the idea of like a first season of a show doesn't have to be perfect. Like that is very true for Black Sails. That is definitely a show where people go, hey, listen, the first season is eight episodes. Watch it for the context. And then it gets incredible and just keeps going to new heights with every season after. And obviously this is the same writing team. But like, for example, there are a few things in Black Sails that are almost like cornerstones of their way of storytelling. So they would do, you would get the audio from a conversation that's happening while you see different action happening. And the interplay between those two things is super important. So there's the rule within, I'm sorry to reveal this to anyone who hasn't yet hopped on this bit of knowledge, If someone in a movie or a TV show tells you their plan, the plan is not going to work. Yeah. That's just how it works. Um, (laughs) So it's really sorry to have pulled Every James Bond villain says, what? Yeah, right. It's like if someone is like, right, here's the plan, and they say the plan, that plan will not, because why would you use up screen time to tell you the plan and then you see the plan? Yeah. This was also my approach when I was reading Harry Potter. I clued into it early. People are like, Mm -hmm. because they try to do mystery stuff all the time. And it's like, well, if Harry thinks this person's the villain, I don't think it's going to be him. That's not evident. (laughs) But you see it all the time in heist movies and like basically any kind of movie where a plan happens in quest movies. But the way that Black Sails often does it is that when the person starts to explain what the plan is, you are hearing it over what is actually happening in the future. So you don't know if the narration is going to stop and you're going to see the plan work or if the narration will continue and you'll be seeing things go wrong as you hear what was meant to have happened. So it's a way of like showing the like intelligence of characters and the planning without taking all the tension away. And they also do things like having flashbacks that intersperse within an episode. And specifically, there is a very, very well, well-regarded episode of Black Sails where two characters with a very complicated friend-slash-enemy relationship are sword fight training. <laughs> and this happens, this exact scene happens in the Percy Jackson show. And I was like punching my pillow. I was like, this is, oh my God, they're doing the thing, they're doing the thing. And it was really fun because people who are not fans of Black Sails, like people in the audience, like younger watchers, were all so stoked. Like the people I was watching with were so excited about this scene. They were like, this is so cool. We're going back in time. We're seeing this fight. Oh my God, the context. And it felt like that little bit of extra camp context that they knew they couldn't really do at the beginning because they would stall the start of the quest, but that they were like, actually, we're going to show you they did do training. Here's us doing this flashback for it, which felt like a really nice way of doing that, to me at least. Like it gave us a little bit of interesting context. I, I loved it. 
I absolutely loved it. Episode eight, I just, that is what has me the most excited for a future season because I feel like they were on fire in episode eight. It was so good. I felt like that episode was absolutely perfect. And yeah, the flashback thing is just another thing that I think makes this adaptation so interesting is that you get to do some things that you don't get in the book. You get to do nonlinear storytelling. We get to see things from other people's perspectives because it's not just first person narration. So for them to kind of show that just really kind of open the doors of like, they can do anything. Oh my God. Like they can give us the same story, but in a different way. And I think that's what's one of the more fun things about adaptation from one medium to another is we get the same story either with new stuff or told in a different way that's still true to the story. And I think it's so fun. And yeah, I know a lot of Black Sails fans were hyped about the similarities between that and some scene I haven't seen yet, but Daphne has badgered me enough where I believe I will watch the show eventually. Yeah, I know. I was like, Daphne's going to badger you so much and then I'm going to be like the support team to Daphne. Like, yeah, Shobes, you should definitely watch it. Do the show. But um, I also think that there's kind of like a similar element of these writers get a first season in which they're kind of append in by producers, by the network, by these like stipulations of like, hey, we're trusting you with this very important thing. And then when you trust them and let them loose, you allow them to do the things that are not just by the book. Okay, now we're doing a quest narrative, which I hate quest narratives so much. Like as someone who appreciates like narrative structure and things. I think that that it's really hard to do a quest narrative, especially with a kid's media, with any kind of tension for kids who are at the age in which they understand the story is just lots of, like you were saying, Sheeb's like, oh, this is a vignette followed by another vignette. And we know we're all going to survive because they're not killing one of the three of these characters off. Like once you get to that age where you realize there's no real danger of these three dying before the end, it's kind of like, okay, another monster. And you have to make the monsters and the adventures exciting enough, which is where my controversial movie opinion comes in, which is that I think they did do a better job in the movie of creating monsters or scenarios that were different enough from each other that you knew you were going to have to use different skills in each of these different adventures rather than just being like, and then we fought another monster. And it also gave away that context, which I don't know which one is used in the book, of we are going to these places and there are these three distinct places because we need to collect the pearls because we need to do that before we get to the underworld. Otherwise we cannot leave. That to me felt so much tighter than what was happening in the show where I was kind of like, I guess we're wandering around the US (laughs) trying to find some people. Maybe I didn't really know where we're going with this. I will say that was kind of an issue of like, what is the purpose of what we're, we know the end goal. What is the purpose of each of these stops? Besides, we just need to get to this place. Yeah. So in the book, it is just, we just got to get to Los Angeles. Like that is truly it. I can see the, the hot take having some sense in terms of like the monster fights being different and all. I still feel like in the show they did that a little bit where you've got, you know, it's a team effort for them. I guess the Medusa and the Krusty one feel very similar where it was like a teamwork thing that utilized invisibility to trick the opponent. So I can see that. But then I feel like the Echidna fight is very different and the Minotaur fight is just personally being like, I don't know, man. Uh, But This is, again, something that I think could have helped with the context, because basically the way it works in the book is since Zeus thinks Percy did it, 
and Zeus is the lord of the skies. Flying is not an option, so they can't just take an airplane to Los Angeles. And then that's another thing established in the books that I think is great. This is my favorite thing when books just do something that's ridiculous and you go, yeah, because it's a book and it's more fun. You can't use cell phones because monsters can smell cell phones. Love it. I think it's so goofy and I can see why I didn't make it into the show. But reading the book, I was like, yes. Uh, it's just it's like when you watch John Wick and it's like his suit is bulletproof and you're like, yes, because it makes the movie better. Of course. Fine. Of course. <laughs> great. <laughs> cool. So I think because you don't have those contexts, I can see how you two would have the thought of why are they doing this? It's truly just we have to make our way westward and we can't take a plane and we're too young to drive. So we're going to take an Amtrak train. And the way it works in the book is like they're literally just taking a train as far west as it can go. And the way they go into the arches, they have like a multiple hour layover. And Annabeth is a big architecture nerd. And she's like, can we go to the arch? And they're like, sure, because they're kids. I feel like you still get a good amount of like them just being kids and some of the ways they interact. But in the books, there's more of them being kids and like the decisions they make in terms of like, let's do this fun thing or like them falling for really obvious traps. And I don't know that that translated as well in the show. So yeah, I, I can see how context could have helped that a little bit more about like, why are they doing exactly what they're doing? But I don't know that I would go full-fledged into the Pearl thing was better. <laughs> just I mean, it was just kind of not random, but I do feel like it's because it gave you that structure of like, this is why they're going to those places and that uh -huh. you, there's an understanding of like, okay, and then they're going to encounter things in these places because they know there's going to be some like fight or some encounter in order to like earn them mm -hmm. as opposed to what happened, which was really funny as well, because I saw all of the book readers being like, why are there four pearls? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I didn't even know the pearls were, okay, we're getting pearls now, sure. Mm -hmm. But it, I think it's one of those difficulties with something like this, where you do have a certain number of episodes where you're aware of like, oh, we're tuning in at this bit of the journey. And you do understand within the lore, the idea of like monsters are following. But there's also like, we just happened upon this place where Medusa was. We just went through, which is very much fine. But I think for me, it takes away some of the tension and again, it's like, I'm an adult woman watching these, so it's not for me. But there is, I think that it's always that issue. With and, and I think with stakes as well, you've got the stakes in this where essentially there's going to be a cataclysmic war, which is like the same as being like, the universe is going to be destroyed. The whole world is going to blow up. Like we also had established the fact that like dying question mark, does it even matter? Can we just bring people back from the underworld? I guess that's easy enough to do at any point. So it was like, where is the tension or the time limit, especially when the time limit, it turned out didn't actually matter. It was like, okay, well the like solstice or the deadline passed and that didn't seem to immediately end the world. So I, I was kind of like, mm, if you're going to do a quest narrative, that, that classic, okay, we're going on this one journey to this one goal at the end and we're having to try and sustain the energy and the tension the whole time. It was strange to me that they were like, and that one bit of tension about the time limit actually didn't matter. Forget about that. That's unimportant. Yeah, I think that the change of making the deadline not matter, I liked it because I think it made Percy's decision to continue on and do the quest, even though the quest failed. I think it showed him having the right priorities where he was like, I don't care about the quest. Like, we're talking about saving the world. I got to go through with this because they need to know about Kronos. And interestingly, I feel like that's kind of how it goes down in the book. Like, in the book, he does meet the deadline and everything. But in retrospect, when you think about it, the quest itself didn't matter too much for the deadline because Zeus was fully convinced that Percy was the lightning thief the whole time. No matter what clues made it seem like he wasn't, he was just all in on like, this guy did it, I don't care. So I guess in the show, they took that to the next level of like, 
since he didn't care, it, it never mattered. Let's just make it not actually matter at all. So yeah, I, I can see what you're getting our own is kind of like we're in a quest narrative, but at the same time, we're not doing like the tent poles of a quest narrative. But I feel like the show, maybe if they did flesh out the context a little bit more with like the monsters following them and coming upon them, because that is kind of how the monster fights happen in the book is just like they just keep getting derailed by monsters attacking them and just showing up in different scenarios. So I feel like that is something that just like made more sense because they explained more things about monsters smelling the demigods, monsters coming out of wherever to attack them. And especially as they more understand their powers, the smell becomes stronger, scarier monsters come. I feel like that was like a little bit mentioned in episode one with the jacket and the smelling, but like wasn't really fully fleshed out on that's the kind of stuff that Percy learns at camp for the chapters upon chapters that he's at camp before he leaves for the quest. I think they did a good job of spreading some of that information out throughout the show and different characters talk about it either to Percy or to the audience so they can understand. But yeah, I think that those kind of things with the context would have helped the the quest feel like it had more either meaning or stakes or tension like you're saying. Well, I like the line where they, he, I think it was Percy who said like last time the gods had a war it started World War II down here. So it gave you some real world context, which like, that's interesting. That opens a lot of questions about like gods with certain priorities, but it opens fewer questions than what's in the book, which is basically Hitler was a son of Hades. So I think they did a better job. Because it is an interest. Yeah, it's that's one Hades of those should have like, gotten oh. his kid into art school. Um, <laughs> Hello and welcome to the last lightning brief that we'll be doing for a little bit. Just going to do a few podcast updates before getting back to the rest of this conversation. It is New York City edition. I know I said it was going to be Florida edition, but then tour was too busy to where I had to finish up all the episode stuff on Monday morning. And now the episode will be out in the world in the near future. But thank you for listening to the updates that we've got here very quickly. Going to be back on tour this coming weekend for three total shows, two in Denver on the same day. Late show sold out. Thank you very much. Early show still has tickets. And that's on February 18th. And then Phoenix, Arizona will be on February 20th. The guests, I don't know that I've announced those yet, but the guests for Denver, it's going to be Nathan Cox both times. And then in Phoenix, it will be Jania Stewart. I'm still figuring out exactly what the content covered will be. Might do some stuff from Demigods and Monsters. Might do stuff from Percy Jackson's Greek Gods. Just follow at News Olympian on Twitter and Instagram, and I'll be posting updates there during this week. If you want to get tickets to those shows, head on over to thenewsolympian.com slash live. If you go to thenewsolympian.com Olympian.com slash merch. The beads are now back in stock. So if you had placed an order for beads, they should be on their way to you now. But if you want to order more of our TNO specific joke beads, you can head on over and get those at the new Olympian.com slash merch. Recent restocks also include the My Other Pen is Riptide pens and the Camp Regular Person shirts should be arriving shortly. Also, just a scheduling note, I will be taking next Monday off. There will not be a new episode of the new Olympian. Just I haven't taken a break in a very long time, much longer than I normally go. And then I was also posting twice as many episodes as normal during the TV show's run. And then also with all this tour stuff that I've been doing recently, just a lot 
I could really use a break. So there won't be a new TNO next week, but I will be uploading a Potterless episode either this week or next. So there will at least be some new extra podcast in your ears if you are looking for some new content from me. And then after that break, we will be back in action covering the Sea of Monsters movie and then the Lightning Thief musical and then Heroes of Olympus. As always, you can go to the newsalimband.com slash about to see what is ahead in the next four weeks for the podcast. I'd also like to give some thank yous. I want to give a thank you to everyone who came out to any of the shows in Florida or anyone who watched the stream of the show. I believe I'll be able to get a video version of that up on the merch store soon. So if you want to watch that later, you can. But really, thank you to everyone who came to the shows, everyone I got to meet, everyone who gave me gifts. That's very, very sweet. Everyone was just a delight over that tour. So thank you so much. And also speaking of folks who are delights, we have new patrons to welcome into the Patreon team. Shout out to all the patrons supporting the show, being really fun to chat with in the Discord. It's always nice to have that sense of community and And it's extra special that you all are helping me continue to do this as my job, which is my dream. My dream is just to be able to continue to do stuff creatively full time. So thank you for helping me achieve my dreams. But I want to give a shout out to the folks who've joined the Patreon most recently. Shout out to our newest God tier patron, Tori Worley. And shout out to our newest demigod tier patrons, Bookaholic, Punctual Mage, Rachel Gunn. I sent in a joke about Florida one time from Ariel, Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo, and number two Animorphs fan. Also want to do a name correction for Christian Ferrier. Thank you all so much for your support. May Apollo bless you that if you are going outside and it is a sunny day, you bring your sunglasses. And if you're going outside and it's not a sunny day, you don't bring your sunglasses and then you don't have to carry them around all day. I've had both of these problems happen to me recently. You know, it's like that umbrella thing, right? You know, you bring one, it doesn't rain, you don't bring one, it rains. I feel like I have that with sunglasses. Now, if you're all caught up on the News Olympian and you're looking for a new podcast to listen to, you're in luck because I make a whole bunch of podcasts as an independent podcast boy. One of the ones I think you would enjoy is one that I referenced earlier, Potter similar in structure to TNO, but it was me going through the Harry Potter books for the very first time. It's also kind of the first major podcast that I made. Part of the fun of Potterless is listening to it grow from a creative project to a side job to a full-time job. That's part of the fun experience. Also, it's a little bit different in than that one is an explicit podcast, 18 and up. So if you want to hear me curse about stuff, well, ho, 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 check out Potterless. But I will be posting a new episode to the feed soon. It is a bracket that Johnny and I did in St. Louis in 20. 2022, where we determined the funniest moment in the Harry Potter books. So you can find that podcast by searching for Potterless wherever you get your podcasts or by going to our website, potterlesspodcast.com. Now, before I wrap up here, you're going to hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of those ads will be read by me. Others of them won't be. The ones that aren't read by me are inserted locally. So if you live in Florida, don't be surprised if you hear an ad for Wawa. I was surprised. I forgot that Wawa's also existed in Florida. And yes, you can believe that I went to a Wawa during our road trips in between the cities. And yes, I am currently wearing a Wawa sweater. They're not paying me. I would love it if they did. But once those ads are complete, and you won't get any of these ads if you're listening on Patreon because you get ad-free episodes as being a member of the TNO tiers, but otherwise, once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of the News Olympian, but on Patreon, you're going to get right back to this episode of the News Olympian. This episode of the News Olympian is brought to you by Arena Club. Now, if you listen to this podcast, it should be no secret that I am both a sports nerd and more of a traditional nerd, and when you think of these two types of nerddom, there's one thing that links them together, and that is card collecting. Whether you are looking to buy, trade, sell, or display a card collection of sports cards or Pokemon cards, you should check out Arena Club. ArenaClub.com is the place where you can do all of these things. I have recently made a purchase 
purchase on the marketplace. I got Lieutenant Surge's Raichu, which is my favorite Pokemon, and I didn't even know that there was a Lieutenant Surge version of the Raichu. So that is a card that I now have, and it's not just some digital thing. I can have this card physically mailed to me. So there's a bunch of cool stuff you can do with Arena Club, including their slab packs. If you have ever done any sort of card collecting, you know that ripping packs or repacks can be a zero transparency type of thing where you're just hoping you get some sort of cool card. But what's nice about the slab packs with Arena Club is that you have full transparency. You see what available cards are there, what your percentage of getting them is, what the gradings are. So it is not a complete black box. You're going into this knowing what cards you might get. And I've been using Arena Club and it's pretty cool. It's very easy for me to look up different cards. I can favorite them, see what I want. And then whenever I want them shipped to me, I can get them shipped to me and then I'll have the physical versions of them. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash TNO. Wow, that's a wild offer. 10% off a $400 slap pack? That's 40 bucks right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash TNO for 10% off your first purchase. So if you want to collect some cards or rip open some packs in a more transparent way, whether you're a sports nerd or a Pokemon nerd or all sorts of nerds like me, you can use Arena Club today. Can I ask you a question about something in the season and how you felt about it? I'm curious how the general fans feel about it. The show went very, it, it shied away from mega star cameos with one notable exception. And they were very intentional with it because you get Lin-Manuel Miranda's face delivering that package at the end of one of the episodes. And then obviously he has that role. How did you guys feel about it? And I'm curious how have Percy Jackson fans felt about it? Because I think if you have a relationship with Lin-Manuel Miranda, that it's the only time I think in the show where you're just like, I know that person, that's Lin-Manuel Miranda. This is the Lin-Manuel Miranda show. I thought the conversation he has with Percy, like in the, the table was actually really good. I enjoyed it. I'm just curious. It was kind of a shift from everything else. It was like, it felt like a very conscious choice of like, Look at this famous person. Yeah. Look at this famous person who's in the show. I'm sure that there was probably a decision from Disney to be like, we got to get someone. And I think that the general reaction to it was when it was announced, there was a bit of worry, especially when the photos came out of him as Hermes, because it was just like him in a sweatshirt. And it was like, wow, Lin-Manuel Miranda dressed as Lin-Manuel Miranda. So I was a bit hesitant. And then I watched the episode and he was really good. Like really he good. was very good, especially for how the character of Hermes develops. Like I think he absolutely knocked it out of the park. So I think it worked. It seems like fans generally liked it as well. I didn't see people complaining. I definitely saw people complaining when those press release photos came out. They were like, oh, look, it looks just like Lin. But then I don't think anyone really had a gripe with his performance in the show. I think that the casting is one of the things that they just absolutely knocked out of the park because you get some of the bigger names for certain things, but it was just always perfect. Like Jason Manzoukas' Dionysus is the correct answer, mm -hmm. and he was so fantastic, and I was super hyped. I loved Suzanne Cryer in Silicon Valley, so to see her as Echidna I thought was incredible. I was so hyped for that. I think they really did a good job with all of the casting. Personally, I think that now, if they do feature seasons, you might get some bigger names, and I feel like they will continue to try to find people who fit the role like I know the classic examples like Will Ferrell sometimes doesn't get cast in certain things because he's just Will Ferrell in it which is great but like you have to commit to him being like Will Ferrell or like Samuel mm -hmm. L. Jackson like it's just going to be that person I can see the show shying away from that still 
but I think they might get some bigger names. I loved all the casting. What did you think about everything, Rowan? I agree with Carl that that conversation with Lynn actually was really good. I think it makes sense because if you've, his kind of biggest role that people know him from is Hamilton. And I feel like within that, there is a huge amount of like grief and guilt around fathers and sons. So I was like, yeah, this is going to work. Like he, <laughs> he's already done this on stage so many times. Like that character completely makes sense. I also think that actually like big name casting in the roles of gods and goddesses also just kind of works thematically because they are these characters who are like larger than life energy. Like they have a mythos around them. They have like a known quantity around them. So I actually feel like if they did decide to do that, that would kind of almost work with the vibes of gods and goddesses. I also, I mean, personally, again, as a Black Sails fan, was particularly excited for the casting of Poseidon. And I thought that he did a phenomenal job in that final episode. Like I'd seen the heights of his acting prowess already, but I really felt like every like movement of his face in that conversation with Percy was like telling a whole story in the background that I really appreciated that like subtextual element of understanding that we got. And there are a few moments actually between the relationship with Poseidon and Sally that I thought were really interesting, like where she, her attitude towards like being in the rain, even like the look on the actress's face said so much that you gradually piece together as you understand more about her relationship, what her relationship with like water would be. And that conversation that they have about Percy, that's like a little flashback as well is like such an interesting moment, like her doing the offering in a bar. Like there were so many little moments like that, that I really, really enjoyed from those like adult actors and scenes in which Percy is not privy to, which I think is also really interesting because if, so the books you were saying are like from Percy's point of view, essentially like narrated by him. That stuff was not in the books at all. So all the Sally, all those flashback scenes are new. The Sally Poseidon stuff is new. I thought that was extremely effective, Mm -hmm. like very smart to have in there. Yeah. So I think they nailed that. There was a lot of examples, those in particular, which are the things of like, this wasn't in the book, but that's so Sally. Like they conveyed it because a lot of Sally stuff happens before Percy goes on the quest. So I think that was a really good job of like getting the Sally emotion and adding new stuff and then making it exciting for book readers as well. Like we get this new thing. So it's not just like watching a copy paste exhibit of a book turned into a show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now talking about casting like big names as gods, like sadly they, they will have to recast Zeus. I, I assume Zeus yeah. is in future books. He's Zeus. Yeah. He definitely becomes a bigger player, not necessarily like a huge main character, but he, he definitely has more of a recurring thing and God, you want to talk about someone doing a whole scene like Toby Stevens did nail it with the facial expressions, especially because Poseidon's character, a lot of the times Percy's narrator is like, it felt like my dad wanted to say something, but couldn't. <laughs> so they did a good job of that. But Lance Reddick, just with the eyes that he shot at Percy, gave like a 12 page monologue. <laughs> like his, uh, it's a really incredible performance. He's so talented. It's a shame, but I'm glad we at least like got his performance because he was unreal as Zeus. Okay, we're running short on time, but before we wrap it up here, just any other final parting thoughts that you all had about the season, anything that you wanted to talk about that you didn't get to discuss? I feel like we truly could talk about this for a million years, Uh, but is there any other things before we wrap up that you were like, I just wanted to get this in. This is something I like. This is something I hated. Anything like that. Hands down, the scene in the show that I was like, this is the benchmark for which I will be judging future seasons of this show. Like this is what I want them to really like get the chance to play with was the Luke and Percy scene with the reveal with the fireworks in the background in that final episode. Oh my God. I was like, yes, this is what I want. You've given me 
a really stunning, interesting, unique visual language. You've given me an amazing script. You've given me this performance. You've given me a little bit of what some people were a bit unsure about where Percy is actually able to figure things out, which allegedly in the books, I guess he just never knows anything. (laughs) I think that was actually a complaint. People were upset that there weren't more examples of it because there's a couple more times where Percy does piece it together. This is something that because I had watched episodes five through eight all at one go, Mm -hmm. when people were complaining that in episode six, for example, the Lotus Casino, like they knew it right from the jump and then the crusty thing in episode seven, where they kind of like figure it out before they even get there. I was like, legally, I couldn't say anything, but I wanted to be <laughs> like, just coming, watch episode coming, eight. Everyone, everyone just watch the end of episode seven where he figures out Hades and watch episode eight. Like, it's going to be fine. But I like had large, bold, red emails from Disney <laughs> telling me not Don't to say, say anything. But I was like, guys, it's coming. It's coming. But yeah, I feel like eight kind of cleared that all up. Anyway, you were saying Percy figuring stuff out. <laughs> yeah, I feel like it's because I, I kind of heard stuff from people being like in the book, there's things that he didn't know that he suddenly knew in the show. And so I knew that people had like complained about that. So I was like, but I actually felt like it felt earned in that moment. It there is something that hits really hard about a betrayal in which you find out as it's almost happening. But I also felt like the gray area nuances of a character who has done something which is objectively bad from the point of view of this character who has gone through a massive quest to try and rectify what's happened, but seems to have some smart things to say alongside Annabeth finding out, which again in the books I'm told is not how this happens originally. I felt like any bit in the show where they were amping up the ambiguity and nuance of like, the gods not necessarily being the good guys and the monsters not necessarily being the bad guys. Any moment where we had something a bit interesting happening on screen where they were really digging into the intensity, that's what I want going into season two for me. Like, And I'm really hoping it does get a season two where they really are looking at like, for example, the Lotus Casino, the concept of like the horrors of what that could be, like how completely awful it is to realize that you're like forgetting things and that there are there's a possibility of like never getting out of this place. Like I really want them to have the ability to like push the stylization that we saw in that fireworks scene in whatever episode they're able to, that they give them enough time with the scripting and with the kind of cinematography and set design to allow them to really push that because we know that they've got these moments where they really are doing it. And hopefully when we've already got this law in place from season one, we kind of get what the world building is, that they'll kind of be able to do a little bit more of that. That's kind of what I'm hoping for. Yeah, you are going to love either book four or season four because what you have described is basically Battle of the Labyrinth where it's funny because I didn't realize this until you'd mentioned this of saying, you know, there's only so much you can do in quest structure. They're still like quest books in one, two, three and four and then five is more like a war book. But once three comes into play, the big picture stuff is so important that the quest almost feels secondary. Like they're still going on a quest, but they're always talking about the bigger picture stakes the entire time. Yet they still are going from like place to place to place. But book four is a really big one for like, I don't want to spoil anything, but it's a big one of like the big pictures are here, but there's this other stuff happening. But I really want to focus on the big picture. Like, oh, I, I think they're going to nail it. I really do. I think they're going to do it. I, I think you are exactly right where what episode eight, that scene in particular with Percy and Luke shows. That is, I think, their best job of like taking the whole five books and kind of putting it into one scene. And when I think of the whole series, I think of a scene like that. And it's something that I didn't realize until after I finished the episodes. Intentionally, this is called Percy Jackson and the Olympians season one. They never call it like the lightning thief. So I'm trying to think of this more as season one of 
Percy Jackson and the Olympians mm-hmm. as opposed to the TV adaptation of book one, The yeah. Lightning Thief. I feel like we kind of got to see where they go with the whole show and realize like, yes, it is based on The Lightning Thief, but it's also really just like the first season of a show with X seasons that will tell the whole five book story. And I think in episode eight, they prove that they can like really nail the tone of like the main series that's super present in books three, four and five. Yeah. So I agree. Kyle, any other final things? The Luke reveal is really great. Yeah. Especially because I because of seeing the second movie, I was waiting for this. I was like, when does he kind of break bad or do whatever? And it's I think I had the same sentiments with the second movie when it, the same thing he tells Percy in this, like about the gods being bad parents. And the, yes, like Kronos is the one who opened his eyes to this, but it's kind of like the meme, like the onion thing, like heartbreaking, the worst person you know is is right or whatever. Cause like <laughs> yeah, they yeah. are. Worst person you know made a great point. Yeah. yeah. And and that's and that's the really I'm fascinated to see where this goes because I think that's a really interesting dynamic and and grudge that he's holding of like, these absentee parents are not good parents. They're not. And that's the whole thing with Greek mythology is the the conflict between father and sons and mothers and sons and mothers and daughters and things like that. I thought the visual with the fireworks and everything like that, like I thought it was a good ending. I think, Mike, you said this earlier, You episode eight, I think was the best episode. I think they ended really strong. I think they wrapped it up really well. Landing the plane is often the hardest thing to do. So I think it's set up really well for the future. From a personal perspective, I watching my son tear through this book was incredible. Um, he's been mostly into graphic novels and pretty much his exact age was when I uh, found Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, which changed reading for me and made me just made me into a reader and someone who loved books. And like seeing this now has been really special. And I'm glad that, you know, he said, I asked him in the car what he thought I told him I was going to do the show and like what he thought about. It. And he was like, it was great. And he said, reading the book really helped me watching the show. And I was like, good. He got four more and I'm, hopefully he flies through them and then learns what what we all have with TV shows is that waiting for a second season is terrible. Waiting for another <laughs> season of TV is the longest wait. An important life lesson for him, though. Kids these days, they need to <laughs> they need to wait and learn. Now, that's awesome to hear, man. I, I think that's something that if you take a step back and you realize this show is doing a lot of really cool things where it's going to get a bunch of kids into reading. It's going to bring a bunch of people, old and young, into the fandom, which is really cool. And it's a show that you can watch as an adult and fully enjoy it, like the three of us did, or as a 10-year-old kid and enjoy it. And what's really cool is you can watch it with the whole family and everyone can have a good time and it doesn't feel like you're watching necessarily a kid's show and it also doesn't feel like you're dragging your kid into watching an adult show. It's very in that Pixar wheelhouse of like, this is good for everyone as opposed to a movie that would be like mostly kids and it's like, let's throw the adults a joke of a bone every now and then. Like this is something that, you know, all these people who are talking about it online, for the most part, adults, and then I'm sure there's a bunch of kids who are gonna like, talk about this in the lunchroom. I don't know, like a cafeteria. They'd be like, did you watch the episode of Percy Jackson last night? That was so cool. His pen's a sword. Like, I, I think it's super fun. And I'm glad to hear that your kid not only enjoyed the show, but is also now devouring the books. Like, that's what it's all about. Like, that's the cool stuff. That's what's awesome. Absolutely. Like it, it was, it is, I'm glad that like he and I got to share this together and that he's going to read these books. And hopefully this will be Game of Thrones for kids. Kids will just 
be obsessed with this. And then hopefully the last season is actually good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> say one of the six jokes I know. So <laughs> thank you both so much for coming on and having this discussion. This was wonderful. Again, could have done this forever, but you are both busy, important people with busy, important things to do. Speaking of those busy, important things, if people want to find you doing stuff, where can they find you? Rowan, how about you? Uh, if you search Rowan Ellis on YouTube, you can find my video essays. There's two Rowan Ellis channels, me and a bodybuilder, I believe. So it should be pretty obvious who is who. <laughs> You're the swole one. You've been in a squat this entire episode. I know, right? Yeah, this whole time underneath this desk. And if you're someone who's listening to this and going, I also love Black Sails. I think my longest video essay is a Black Sails specific video essay comparing the last season to the last season of Game of Thrones and why one worked and one didn't. So mm-hmm. that's my kind of specialty. And then I'm podcasting. I'm co-host of the Queer Movie Podcast, which will be whatever you're currently listening to this podcast on. It'll be there as well. Unless you're listening to this on the New Olympian website, unfortunately. In which case, actually, it won't. There's a secret portal you can go to to get there. No, if you search Queer Movie Podcasts, it should be uh, around about there. Amazing. What about you, Kyle? Um, if you want to follow me on the Hell site, formerly known as Twitter, I'm at Kyle Banduho. Uh, you can catch me every Monday on Big Screen Sports, which is the podcast where all movies are sports movies. Mike has appeared on. We have talked about Quidditch. We have talked about Pitch Perfect. We did Little Big League recently. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of our third annual rom-com month. So by the time this drops, we'll probably have 27 dresses and the wedding planner up. Oh, great. 27 <laughs> dresses. I was at first time watch for me. Really, really enjoyed it. Watching the wedding planner for the first time tonight. We'll see. That comes at you every Monday. And yeah, go check it out. Sports movies and and all movies. We pretty much cover everything now. Yeah. And I've been on the show many, many, many times. All the episodes are great. But if you're like, wow, Mike and Kyle, well, don't worry. There's like at least eight. We we first (laughs) connected pre-COVID to talk the Quidditch scenes of Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. And Mike, I was thinking about this. I think this is the first time that we have recorded a podcast where you have both great optimism for the Knicks and the Yankees. Dude, I think it's this a wild coincided. <laughs> yeah, now everyone's going to turn off the thing as I talk about my two sports teams both being good at the same time for the first time in my life. Um, <laughs> truly, truly <laughs> but, incredible. I guess in 1999 and 2000, we were both good. But yeah, it's been a wild time. But that's for a separate discussion. Listen to Horace, my basketball podcast about that. But Kyle and Rowan, thank you so much for joining. Listeners, thank you for listening. And until the next episode of... This podcast comes out, which should be about the Sea of Monsters movies. Until then, I'll see you later. Hello. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Newest Olympian. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Mike Schuber. I also run the social media and the website. Our editor is Sherry Guo. The music is by Bettina Campamanas and Brandon Grugel. And the art is by Jessica E. Boyd. If you can't get enough of the show, you can find us on social media. We're at Newest Olympian on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And we're on Reddit as well, reddit.com slash r slash The Newest Olympian. And if you really can't get enough of the show, you can check out the bonus content for the podcast at thenewestolympian.com slash Patreon. There's a bunch of bonus content you can get exclusive exclusive merchandise, lots of fun stuff there. And if you want other merchandise, you can go to our merch store, thenewestolympian.com slash merch. I mentioned the Patreon, so let's give a shout out to our producer level patrons, Kelsey Gillespie, The Damn Steve Nuggets, Vicky Garcia, Ellie Hauskovchova, Veronica Bartova, Frida Vikstrom, Megan Moon, Craig McRoberts, Taylor Payne, Sabrina Balsiger, Bony Pony, Polly Burge, Nikki Harris, Tatiana Schmidt, Sandra Rose, Josh Sayer, Josh Wilkie, Abby Ryan, Ashton Gabrielson, Marco Redhouse, Sam Sam Reeby, Riley Kiddas, Mary Kelly, Mrs. O'Leary, Milo Kim, Cece Reads 23, Sankoff, 
Ralph, Julia Kendall, Ricky, John Drillsma, Rayla Matthews, Riley Draken, Luna Kadoon, Sky Mallory, Persasabeth, Aiden Parziani, Biggest Tyson Fan, Hunter Landstrom, Captain Jack Rackham, King Bastion, One Damn Distraction Coming Up, Ginger Spurs Boy, A Cup of Solace, Meg Roy, Lux, Neil, Olivia Krinicki, Mrs. O'Leary is Best Doggo, Bradimus Prime, Keepo Guy, McKenna Finley, Skylar Sisters, Demigod Nurse, Zachary Hamilton, Scott Sheldon, Sophie, Natanya Page, and Anne M. Thayer Cohen. If you want to help out the show in a non-monetary way, just talk about the podcast, whether that is posting about it on social media or reaching out to someone that you think would like the show, or just leaving us a rating and review on whatever podcasting app you are using. All of those things help. Spreading the show's existence via word of mouth is essential for the podcast, so I'm very appreciative to anyone who has done that in the past or will do it in the future. But I'm just so thankful that you tuned into this episode, and I hope you tune into our next episode, which won't be next week, but it'll be the week after. And that episode will be about the first portion of the Sea of Monsters movie, and our guests are Kelly Schubert and Michael Harley. But until then, I'll see you later. Hey everyone, how's it going? It's me, ASMR Mike. So one of the things that I was given at one of these Florida shows as a gift was a gift bag from a lovely listener, Morgan, who was kind enough to give me a whole bunch of goodies, one of which was a little desktop trophy that is in the shape of a pigeon, and it has a nice base on it as well. And on the base, it has a little engraving type thing that says, number one pro pigeon podcast, the newest Olympian. And then the gold thing on top is a pigeon. So I'm just going to kind of like tap and run my fingers and fingernails along this, and that'll be the ASMR Mike segment for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and thank you Morgan for this wonderful gift.